This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Out-of-body experience guns? Russian Espionage 101. Reluctant Heroes. And Saving Hypatia. Bobby would yell for seconds on fish and thirds. His mother said his big mouth would give him brain fever like his cousin Larry Marsh, and how would he like that? And Bobby said just fine, and his mother sent him to his room without any fish at all. Thus begins the strangely familiar, yet disturbingly alien, illustrated tale, Where the Deep Ones Are. It's part of Atlas Games' mini-mythos series, which also includes the delightful parodies, Cliff Howard, the Big Red God. Good Night Azathoth, and the Antarctic Express. All of them written by yours truly. Right now, and for a limited time, Atlas is offering a buy-two-get-one-free bundle of mini-mythos goodness. Which makes delightfully subversive gifts for friends, relatives, and especially their children. Leap online, Mythos fans! Point your browsers to atlas-games.com slash Cthulhu4kids. That's Cthulhu, the number four, and the word kids. Or follow the link in the show notes. That seems wise. You're lying on the table, the miniatures underneath you, the smell of Doritos, or toast. Is that toast? Do you see a light? Is that the beckoning gaze of Peter Frampton urging you to come into the light? You don't know, because you're in, not the Twilight Zone, but an out-of-body episode of The Gaming Hut, which is usually not spooky and weird at all, but occasionally games can be spooky and weird, such as when you play around with out-of-body experiences, kids. Don't do this, because ketamine, it's not a friendly drug. But scientists in their lab coats and their ironclad suits of ethics can make out-of-body experiences, and we can make them gameable. Or can we? Robin? Yeah, so I thought what we'd do is we'd riff some ideas. We'd take a step uh, speculatively uh, from uh, what we know scientifically about out-of-body experiences. They, of course, uh, people regard them as a mystical or a proof of life after death. And um, maybe such a thing exists, but uh, we also know that, as you suggest, that these uh, out-of-body experiences can be uh, reproduced in a laboratory environment by messing with your perceptual apparatus. And so what I thought we would do is uh, one of our riffy segments where we take that a step further. And let's say uh, in the future, someone invents a out-of-body experience gun. So we, uh, let's envision a, a ray gun that uh, you can point at someone and it uh, uh, interferes with all of your uh, synapses and your neurons and all of your uh, interconnected uh, chemical things going on in your brain that we don't quite understand yet and allow us, therefore, to make some stuff up. You get to say things like 4 hertz brainwave frequency in vestibular cortex. Exactly. As you point a gun at someone and pull the trigger. So uh, our objective now is to come up with uh, different uh, scenario hooks that could center themselves around the idea of an out-of-body experience gun, or an OBE gun for short. So the first most obvious one uh, that comes to mind is just a 
contemporary uh, weirdness game where the answer to the mystery is, hey, they've invented an out-of-body experience gun so that you could have uh, someone who needs to do some important uh, lecture or uh, attend a meeting or a signing ceremony or some important event where they have to be there for everything to go right. And all of a sudden, this uh, figure who's a, a paragon of rationality collapses, uh, drops to the ground, and uh, they uh, later come back and say that they were lifted out of their body and they rose above the gymnasium they are in and they uh, saw everyone all around them and they realized that their uh, prior commitment to rationalistic materialism uh, was a, a mere frippery uh, uh, and nonsense and in fact that they were nearly ascended to heaven but then went back into their body and it's changed everything. Because they were because they were awful people. Yes. And that's why they had to go back into their body and undo all their badness. Right. Except their badness, in this case, I think, is goodness. That we, uh, the organization sending the PCs off to investigate and figure out what the heck happened, uh, we don't want this new mystical version of this uh, person. We need them back in their prior uh, rational form in order to... Flinty-eyed skepticism. Yes. That's what we're looking for. In order to broker peace between uh, uh, these two contending forces or to, uh, you know, whatever the bad thing is, we need this person uh, de-loopified. Uh, and more importantly, we need to find who's uh, sabotaging uh, that uh, a person's uh, effort and, and what, you know, what the heck caused this weird epiphany. So you uh, establish the situation, you establish why it's bad that this person has suddenly uh, flipped over to mysticism, and now you're trying to find out uh, who flipped them and how. And the answer to the mystery is uh, they have an out-of-body experience gun, and you can follow the uh, you know, the trail of clues to the existence of this technology. And here's the, the lab where the experiments into just ordinary, you know, perceptual messing about were. And, oh, wait a minute. Then they're researching a gun and you follow that trail of clues and then you confront uh, the bad guys. And, of course, that can be the fun bit at the end because you don't want to be zapped out of your body while you're trying to apprehend the bad guys. But the GM wants nothing more in life than for you to be zapped out of your body. Well, yes, of course. Yes. I was thinking, uh, rather than that scenario, though it's the same basic story, that instead of the guy who is looped by it, that uh, people are dying because they're having out-of-body experience. They're literally sort of, you know, going out of their body, and they're like, oh, I must walk into the light, and then they walk into an oncoming train or whatever. Or, and Or they're driving. Or they're driving, or any number of, of, of things that happen to them. But you want to have at least one thing where – why did he walk into the oncoming train, you know, right there in the tunnel? Didn't he see the light, et cetera? And uh, that gives you the clue, oh, or the, it gives your the Mulder in your team the clue that, oh, maybe he was thought he had an out-of-body experience. Why would he have that? And then you trace it to the lab or the mutant that has the out-of-body experience gun. And maybe the gun can only work for people whose brain experiences have already been, you know, jambled off. You know, uh, their, their four betas are all messed up. And so they, uh, they, they're able to operate the, the OBE gun because they are electrically, bioelectrically tuned to it. And so that's why it's a one-off mutant case as opposed to a, a weird lab case. Although it could also be a weird lab case. I was thinking of it as, as more of an X-Files thing, uh, than an Ashen Stars type. Uh, you know, we have to restore rationality, uh, situation. We have to, rather, we have to investigate this, new outbreak of weirdness situation. Right. So the next step is to take the... Uh, and, of, and you know that the, the, the Scully character gets hit by the out-of-body experience gun. Yes. And then at the yes. end goes, well, okay, I've examined the schematics and there's nothing right. mystical and about all this. All this is is just activation of certain uh, rods and cones of the eye and yeah. uh, brain shutdown and blah, 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 oxygen dearth. And then, you know, you pan away and you discover that the out-of-body experience gun 
you know, just the camera shows you that the, 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 the leads weren't connected and that for whatever reason, they had a genuine out of body experience. Dun, dun, dun. Right. Uh, which, uh, if this was a different gaming hut, we could spend 15 minutes on how you make that moment work in a role playing game. Yeah. How you have something that the player characters can't see, but the players can enjoy. But that's a different segment. Um, so the next step, I think, is we'll have to, to wait. Move... Wait, that one's behind a firewall. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the next set of ideas, I think, then, is to take this and begin to move the out of body experience uh, gun out of a Wainscott world, out of a, a mystery. A uh, strange world that is like ours and has to return to a level of rationality, but let's take it into the realm of science fiction. What if the one difference between our setting and the world we know is that out-of-body experience guns exist, they're uh, well-known, and then social problems uh, result from them. And so, uh, first of all, uh, you uh, this becomes just another way to harm people, right? If we suggested earlier that if you are operating heavy farm equipment and then someone hits you with an out-of-body experience gun and you uh, lose, uh, suddenly you're floating above yourself as you watch yourself uh, being ground up in the threshy bits, uh, that's a, a new uh, way to murder people. Uh, but how does that get us into, uh, you know, what would the social or uh, economic or or uh, other changes be from a world where uh, an out-of-body experience gun was a commonly available weapon. Well, I mean, to begin with, there is going to be people who are using it in the same way that people use ketamine, which is a drug that you can take and get something like an out-of-body experience as just a way to get high. And so they're, you know, taking the out-of-body experience gun and they're shooting each other at uh, weird uh, warehouse parties or they're going to strange ashrams and everyone gets hit with the out-of-body experience gun in the hopes that they can all travel to the same heaven uh, in, an, in an OBE and it's it's explained at the ashram that uh sure it's scientific but it's a scientific way to open your third eye and and perceive the truths of the world it's not you're not being fooled by your by your brain's uh near shutdown what you're doing is that that's allowing the consciousness of your brain to shut down on purpose so that you can perceive the higher reality uh of the out of body experience and uh, you have, you have the sort of these little cults and whatnot that are, that are growing up and the, and the weird rave, uh, not raves because you have to jump around a lot more for that, but probably trance music and they're all sh- uh, in EDM and they're shooting each other with, uh, out of body experience guns to get super into the, into the tunes. Because if you listen to this while you're literally out of your body, man, it's going to sound even better. Right. And so that implies what happens with that when actual psychedelic drugs are, are discovered, which is there's a brief period when they're legal. And then, and then the man puts his foot down. Yes. And then people start to, uh, well, uh, you know, this person ran into a concrete abutment and, uh, you know, and, uh, we can't get people to work at, at, uh, Starbucks if they're all tripping on uh, having an out of body experience. So let's make it illegal so that that, uh, gives you a, an item in your world that is another form of contraband. And so you can have a scenario just all about, uh, you know, a shipment of uh, OBE guns is coming in and you are either uh, the paragons of a higher consciousness trying to protect the shipment uh, from the authorities, uh, from the, uh, I don't know, the, the Universal Consciousness uh, Enforcement Administration or, or, you know, whatever the uh, uh, the new anti-mystical uh, task force is that the, uh, the government uh, obviously is going to have to set up. Or, you know, you could depict... Uh, these things as essentially uh, dangerous and uncontrolled and that you're the uh, 
stalwart law enforcement officers protecting the people from this extremely dangerous technology. Um, you could also uh, begin to play with the idea of uh, what if this does, uh, if it becomes uh, very widespread, whether it's legal or not, uh, you would then, of course, the initial uh, cult that sprung up around it would have one set of perceptions around what is happening when you uh, leave your body. But of course, uh, what do you have uh, one day after you have uh, one new sect? Well, you have a schism within the sect. You have uh, conflicts between different groups who profoundly disagree about what's happening to you when you exit your body. And it might be that, uh, you know, one group of people knows that they're talking to the alien greys. And so this is how you uh, learn the revelation of the thing that you have to go and do. And, uh, and once you've gone back into your body, you're not only profoundly changed, but you have this agenda that not everybody likes. And uh, again, can either be a positive consciousness raising agenda uh, that you're going to try and do, or other people have a dangerous killing people and enslaving them agenda, and that you are the good guys who are trying to stop that. Yeah, I, I think that you could also sort of begin to move it a little bit sideways, where, you know, in the, in the same way that sort of, uh, I don't want to say fringe, but let's say less than orthodox theorists say that the, we're actually rewiring our own brains by looking at uh, super quick media stimulation. So now our, our brains are actually wired to respond differently than they were back in the good old days of books and candlelight, or even the days of uh, kinescopes and um, uh, stereoptican slides. Now, because we have our phones everywhere and we've got all the exciting videos and things that pop up, everything, our our actual brain chemistry and our, the way that our brain operates are being altered. If you have widespread OBE gun use, like it's a standard therapeutic thing. Well, uh, you know, you go in and you get your, 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 uh, mental health care. And the first thing to do is they shoot you with an OBE gun to make sure that everything's working out there and find out what you, what you saw when you, and then you come back and that gives them a really good handle on diagnosing you and whatever else. And if use of this has spread so widely, there is some, some notion that the, the human brain is being rewired to operate on these multiple planes. And either you can go back to that sort of, uh, uh, Julian James's nonsense about the two halves of your brain being separate entities that argue in your head. Maybe that begins to happen. You have the separate part of you that's the out of body part that's, uh, maybe like Socrates's daimon that floats around and is like, look out for that train, Jimmy. Um, or maybe there's, um, uh, a part of you that is automatically always mystical. And so the, the new age and people's uh, chakras and crystals and astrology books, sales of all those things blow up, even though they don't technically have anything to do with your out of bodiness. It's just that that part of your brain that responds to that sort of uh, thinking is stronger now because you keep getting it zapped into, uh, into prominence. And so society begins to move, you know, super into the age of Aquarius where all the, all the woo woo stuff be begins to get ever more accepted and ever more, uh, larger part of society. And eventually, you know, people are like, well, if his truth is that he's actually a embodied other kin alien, we should teach that other truth. And now you're beginning to see the fragmenting of society. And so you can have sort of a, a 2060s, right? Where it's the future, but 
the whole uh, age of Aquarius has come around again and, and, and society is, is visibly just about to spin off into a zillion crazy directions because there's not enough people as, as the government legitimately feared to work in Starbucks and, and maintain the robot mines. And so the whole uh, society is about to sort of spiral it, you know, up its own uh, anterior cortex. Right. And of course that gives you a sort of an inequality plot line where of course the people who are able to spend most of their time out of their bodies wandering what they conceive as being the astral plane and what a rationalist still insist is just uh, a different form of waking dreaming. Uh, but, you know, if, if you've got millions of dollars, you can do that all you want. But if you're, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just scraping by making minimum wage, well, you've still got to go to work. And so there may be sort of a growing resentment between the have-nots who have to work in drudgery in order to support the... Uh, um, astral wanderings of the super rich and you know there might be a uh you know a social movement to to liberate the the, the obe guns and make them uh, available to the wider public and so uh, and again as you suggest there may be all sorts of trouble that when all of the um the ruling class uh loses its grip on consensus reality even more so <laughs> than in our current world yes. you know that they can start to uh, well, naturally, those of us who uh, believe we are dragons uh, must uh, raise up a war and go uh, and go uh, fight the people who think that they are uh, descendants of the uh, of the Greek gods because you know they're crazy yeah. and we've got to put them down and that gets you back into your sectarian struggle. But uh, now there's uh, there's money and, and and warfare behind it and it may uh, you know result in a, a far future world where. Uh, you know, the astral travelers uh, dictate everything from afar and you're either uh, fighting on their behalf uh, for the good astral travelers against the sinister ones, or more likely you are the, uh, uh, you're toiling in a big giant Fritz Lang basement uh, waiting to uh, overturn them and uh, get get the world back to practical uh, materialism again. And once we've returned to practical materialism, it's time to do something even more practical which is to play you a lovely commercial message and then start another segment. Kids, want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group? Want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role-playing hobby? Gumshoe One to One has come to your rescue. Find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws. In the first Gumshoe One to One book, Cthulhu Confidential, combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction with the cosmic horror of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos. Complete with three dauntless investigators, each ready to play in seconds. Scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey. Crusading journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman. And Robin's hard-boiled private eye, Dex Raymond. Presenting three terrifying settings. Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town, and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something more than night. Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen. The Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with... Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun. 
the retinal scan that you had to undergo before uh, listening to this segment and the lengthy uh, clearance process that you uh, underwent uh, tell us that we've once more entered the ultra-secure confines of the Tradecraft Hut. Now, uh, Ken, you and I uh, promised ourselves we'd wait a little while before addressing any current events again, uh, in part because some of our listeners uh, would like a vacation from current events, and in part because of our 10-day lead time. Uh, and because current events have a habit of getting squirrely on us. Yes. But we're now at the point where uh, there are Senate hearings, at least one uh, principal in the uh, uh, so-called Russiagate scandal, uh, although I think, as a digression, I think we need something other than gate at the end of this, because if this shapes up to be what it might be, you know, Watergate may be the second biggest scandal in living memory. Um, but at any rate, uh, we've got someone asking for immunity. Nobody particularly wants to give them immunity at this point, but, but mm-hmm. we'll see what happens. So uh, I thought what we can do on this show is step back, give a sense of context and perspective. So I thought this time around we would uh, just cover... The, the primer, the 101 on contemporary Russian espionage, so that uh, our listeners, if they are following uh, the news, can nod sagely uh, when certain uh, terms are uh, brought up. So, Ken, do we want to start with the groups and acronyms, or do we want to start with the, the wider uh, strategic global situation? I mean, if we're starting with the 101, let's real fast break down the three main arms of Russian espionage. And those are the FSB, which I think everyone has heard of, and that is uh, sort of the heir to the KGB's domestic portfolio, the, you know, counterintelligence work in Russia and uh, maintaining of domestic order and spying on domestic dissidents and occasionally whacking a guy here and there. Perhaps a whole bunch of guys. <laughs> I know, maybe a whole bunch of guys. Various other activities, but primarily within the confines of the Russian Federation or every so often – you know, like the FBI will occasionally do, follow a lead out into another country, but it has to be a lead that's developed domestically. And the FBI and the CIA have turf wars, so you can only imagine what the FSB and the SVR have. Right. So, uh, so the mnemonic then is to remember what, what the FSB does is, like the FBI, they both start with F. They are both the internal uh, security mechanisms. Uh, they have counterintelligence, and of course, in the case of uh, the current FSB has much more of an anti-domestic subversion portfolio than the current FBI, though not always uh, in the history of the FBI, they've done anti-subversion as well. Yes, so, but even then, they were butt-pikers compared to the KGB slash FSB. Yeah. And uh, where are we at? Okay, so uh, the uh, then the cousin to the CIA in uh, Russia is the SVR, which is the other half of the KGB. This is the foreign operations uh, arm of the KGB, which became its own agency, the SVR. And the SVR doesn't get a lot of press. It doesn't get a lot of cred uh, for some reason. You don't see them in movies very much. Maybe it's just not as much fun to say SVR, but they are big now. Uh, they have possibly a thousand agents in Britain alone, according to defectors. They have an unknowable number of assets scattered all over the rest of the world, including the good old US of A. Um, they have the old standard methodology where there are special agents or uh, center uh, residentura guys who are the guys who operate out of the embassy, just like when we have the CIA, they go over and they operate out of our embassy, sort of standard spy stuff. And they're developing uh, assets within the country, but they're operating under sort of the standard rules to the extent there are any of 20th century uh, tradecraft. Then there are the illegals, 
who are people who are in the country illegally and are operating under deep cover. Sometimes they're sleepers who have been planted there for a good long time. Sometimes they are uh, just infiltrated and given fake covers. And those are the guys like uh, Philip and Elizabeth Jenkins and TV's The Americans who are going around and engaging in various active measures, although they're probably wearing better wigs now. And uh, then there is a third uh, echelon, if you will, of SVR guys most recently, who came over as legal immigrants after the wall fell and were like, oh, we're refugees from horrible, bad Soviet Union, and won't you welcome us? And, of course, we're a welcoming people. We welcome them, and some of them, some of them turn out to be bad eggs. So that's what the SVR has got uh, going on, and not just in America, but also in every country that Russia sees as a country that needs a little um, uh, they need a little leverage on so that they have the same operation in Germany. They have it in Britain. They have it in France. They have it probably in China, certainly in Japan. And then, you know, various other places as the budget takes it. But as in the old days, the United States is lucky enough to be what they call the prime enemy or the first enemy. And so, uh, we get the, the, the cream of the crop from the SVR. And then the third group is the GRU, which is the military intelligence and if the SVR is bigger and scarier than it ever was, that means it's about to where the GRU always has been. Right. And this one is the one that hasn't changed its uh, initials since Soviet days. Right. The, the, the GRU goes back to the splitting of military intelligence back out of the brief period when the KGB ran everything. And then people said, that's how you get Lavrenti Beria. Let's not do that. And gave the Soviet military control of its own intelligence group again. So, the GPU in the Soviet system became the GRU, which now is the Russian GRU, and that's military intelligence. And just like the American DIA, everywhere there are American military stations in embassies, everywhere there's American military bases, there are DIA agents, because that's what you do. You maintain military intelligence. It's just that the DIA doesn't have regiments of special forces at its command and its own personal listening stations all over the world. Uh, there's a giant GRU facility in Cuba. There's a giant GRU facility in Vietnam. Uh, they are sort of engaged in signals intelligence or SIGINT, as we say, uh, on a level that, you know, would rival any country that isn't the United States. Uh, the NSA, of course, is still the big, the big dog in that field, but the GRU's SIGINT is larger than most countries dedicated SIGINT. And so it is a, it, it's, it's a great big deal. And a lot of the quote unquote Russian hackers that you hear about are GRU, SIGINT and cyber war guys. The cyber warfare seems as far as I can tell from my remove to be mostly GRU and SVR operations, but I assume like everything else in Russian and Soviet intelligence, if something turns out to be tactically useful, it is fought over tooth and nail until both sides get one. And then that's usually how it got solved back in the good old Stalin days. And that's how it gets solved in the good old Putin days. Right. And presumably would be the same uh, in the CIA and the NSA, that if there's a, right. a groovy tool that uh, puts one above the other, both of them are, are going to get it. Yeah. Except that, this, except that in the United States, because the NSA was established with the monopoly over signals collection, it really does have that monopoly. The, the CIA doesn't have teams of cyber war guys, right? They have maybe a cyber war office somewhere, right. but the, if you are actually out monkeying with computers, 
it's NSA or nothing in the United States. Whereas in Russia, there are probably two separate cyber war full establishments, any of which would be the envy of another country's cyber war, except the Chinese, of course, who have sort of thrown manpower at it like uh, the Chinese uh, uh, government often does to solve problems. The the, the Russians have uh, sort of a, a lucky habit of a nation that, that plays chess and does math for fun, and so they're probably able to punch even above their demographic weight in that field. Uh, now, you use the word, uh, the phrase active measures, uh, this mm-hmm. is a word that we're hearing again. We got a new vocabulary entering, and uh, I think it's important, I guess, to know whether a term is extra meaningful or just makes you seem more in the know or, or events more sinister. So the answer is always B. Yes. <laughs> um, no one who actually knows anything about this stuff is saying anything about it because their whole job is to not talk. There are people who used to know it and are retired and. Uh, are they still know a bunch of stuff. They know certainly more than me, but generally the, 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 the cooler and more role playing game soundy a testimony or a blog or a tweet is the more someone is just showing off. So that's, there's your alpha guideline right there. Right. So when they say active measures, there's nothing different about that than saying covert operations, except since it's a, a new or resurgent term, it sounds more sinister. Active measures in the Soviet school and in the Russian school. And then remember, all this goes back to our old buddy, Rachkovsky. I mean, the, the Okrana invented so many of these tools and techniques and then just kept perfecting them because it was literally Darwinian <laughs> days there in the so- in the Soviet and, and Russian security services. Um, but an active measure includes not just uh, going around and, and breaking a guy's neck, but also disinformation, propaganda, bribery, counterfeiting, uh, active disinformation, all manner of things, anything that is aimed at influencing events or weakening a foe, it comes under the broad rubric of active measures, um, uh, as opposed to passive measures, which is just find out stuff, which is what you're expected to do as a spy, sort of your spy job. And because the Russians, quite sensibly, being a nation of chess players, say, if all you do is play defense, no one wins the chess game. They have a strong offensive wing, which uh, the American intelligence establishment is both institutionally and certainly publicly supposed to pretend is stuff we don't do. And as a result, they wind up believing it themselves in the CIA that you're not supposed to do this stuff. And so the people who do do it are a, not very, uh, they're not the A-list people and B, they don't get any love for what they do, which is why it always tends to go spectacularly wrong when the CIA tries it. So gaining information is passive measure. Tweeting that information is active measure. Exactly. Yes. And so I, I guess let's sort of move on in the last few minutes we have in this segment to I guess sort of general rules to go by as we're trying to evaluate what is really happening versus what could have happened. Uh, and I guess the, the first principle there is that in contemporary Russia, everything is connected. It's all part of one ecosystem, the government, business, the security forces, uh, terrorists, organized crime. the uh, uh, organized crime. They somewhere in the flow chart, all of those things go together. That's not unprecedented in human history. That's uh, if you take terrorists out of that mix, that's how L.A. worked in the 30s. Uh, yeah. But uh, that means that everybody in that system is one or two degrees of separation away from everybody else. And the question then, it's not enough, I don't think, to just say, well, this person has this set of connections and this person has that set of connections. And then, you know, and then there's the whole, uh, you know, interfacing set of connections that Trump world has to uh, each other. But the fact that you can connect this person to that person uh, without 
anything more than speculation uh, doesn't tell us what is actually going on because yes. I think this is one of those scandals where anything could be true. Yeah. Um, there's a, there, there's the question of, for example, is someone actually compromised? Do they have what they call compromat on them, which is information, uh, and leverage that they can use to make them do things? Or are they just what we used to call back in the good old Cold War days, a useful idiot? <laughs> someone who goes along. Well, we know there's lots of idiots. We don't know how useful some of them are. I think that was Lenin's term. Maybe it was Trotsky's. It was, it was, it was yeah. a great term back in the day and it was fun to say. And a useful idiot is someone who, can be maneuvered into doing what you want or is already doing what you want and you don't have to do any maneuvering. Uh, and, and so, uh, that would be someone who genuinely thinks, well, maybe making nice with Russia would be cool and we should have some sort of reset button. That would be uh, useful. Um, and, and that, uh, the Russians are sure. Why not? We, we'd love to have that happen. Uh, and in, inactive measures are always the best measures, uh, but you can never tell to what extent someone's one versus the other, because what will happen is you'll get a useful idiot and the uh, intelligence apparatus will say, well, let's just make sure they stay useful and let's make sure that they get a, a constant stream of information about what it is that we actually want. And that can be, there's uh, an aide or someone who is compromised. It can be uh, just a, a, a guy who's uh, in charge of uh, keeping an eye on them from the residentura. It can be any number of, of ways that a useful idiot asset is handled or managed or run in the same way that an actual asset would be handled or managed or run. And then there's just pure coincidence. Sometimes things just break well and the, you know, Georgian army forgets to guard the the railway tunnel and who knew? And is that a situation where the Georgian army was uh, penetrated by uh, the uh, SVR or the GRU or is it a situation where, Hey, guarding tunnels is hard and boring and no one wants to do it. So you, you can, you can never rule out dumb, stupid luck in, in these things as well. And uh, by and large, the old rule, never ascribe to malice what you can ascribe to incompetence, is a good rule of thumb to go by, even in the world where there are thousands of malicious people trying very hard to encourage everyone's incompetence. Right. And and on uh, a lot of levels, it doesn't uh, super matter whether something incredibly destructive is done because someone was an idiot or whether they intended to do it because they were actively Well, no, it, it matters a good deal uh, because if you are an active asset, or worse yet, an active agent of a foreign power, that is much worse than merely being a simpleton. I mean, I, I think that that's, you know, on every level from the moral to the political, it's worse to be an active uh, participant in that kind of thing, as opposed to just someone who sort of sits up and says, what? You mean Putin is bad? Right, but in, ter in terms of the ha in terms of considerable harm yes. can be oh, done. The harm, the, the harm can certainly be done uh, by either one. It's just that... Um, uh, uh, idiots are theoretically educable, whereas assets have to be handled more carefully, flipped at least. Right. And so, uh, very briefly, I, uh, the uh, strategic thing that we're looking at is that the assumption was for many years in, in the West that Russia would sort of gradually come along and evolve a democracy, and uh, they would see all the benefits uh, of uh, merging with the, the global order. Uh, but the uh, initial decade where that happened was a time of great chaos and uh, uh, fear within Russia and the loss of all and their a good buffer deal of states. economic uh, crashing as well. Yeah, it, it wasn't just, you know, that uh, they, they had to sort out all the new stationery. They, you know, suddenly had the, the reality of the Soviet system revealed to everyone and to themselves in a way that uh, can't have been good. I mean, given the national pout we went on when we just lost Vietnam. You know, it's, it's, un it should be at least 
conceivable to us what happened to the the Russian psyche after the Cold War ended. And oh, by the way, communism, haha, <laughs> you're a bunch of idiots. Uh, that that can't have right. been that can't have been productive, and in fact was not. And and uh, uh, Putin certainly was uh, less than amused by the uh, celebratory uh, way that uh, the West greeted the uh, collapse of the Soviet Empire and the turning of uh, the buffer states. If only uh, we'd simply and, taken our shirts off and ridden a bear, like a calm, civilized person. Right. And so uh, uh, Putin uh, feels that democracy is bad for Russia, especially since that means that he might not be in charge of Russia. And I think the different thing that has happened is that uh, conceptually, we've always seen uh, autocratic regimes as sort of one-offs unless they have a, an ideology that they're exporting. And so what I think is surprising is that Putin has decided, well, there's all sorts of different regimes around the world who all don't want democracy and don't want the West pushing democracy, and that he has uh, decided to export wholesale the non-ideology but the practices of autocratic, pseudo-democratic states. And so we're now seeing this uh, this big alliance manifest itself, and it's manifesting itself in all sorts of bizarre ways that you wouldn't imagine, like on Twitter and social media. And speaking of everything connecting, uh, once you start to look at uh, the allegiances between uh, Russian propaganda and uh uh, other people who wish to uh, stir the pot against uh, what they see as a constraining social order, you know, that even phenomenon like Gamergate, uh, in a way, are part of this vast wave that is partly an emergent property, but is also partly something that uh, Putin is actively exploiting and building as uh, an irritant uh, against the West, because any anything he can do to mess with our desire to have a nice complacent democracy where everyone gets along is uh, is a win for him. Yeah, I mean, th this is, it's not so much the notion that Putin is exporting autocracy as the same sort of feeling that the United States had during the Cold War, where if you have a democracy, they could vote in someone who doesn't like you, whereas an autocracy is easier to deal with. And so it just in terms of strategic simplification of the calculations, it makes sense for Putin to want countries to be more autocratic, uh, especially as long as his main enemy is not doing that. If we became a czardom uh, somehow, uh, then perhaps you would see Putin, ex uh, you know, exporting democracy and saying, hey, everyone have votes and, and vote against America in the same way that the Soviet Union would spend a great deal of time building up labor unions and other sorts of uh, activities in America-friendly democracy. So it's not like Putin is like, yay, autocracy, although he probably is just as a student of history, or at least of Russian history, but it is a matter of just what is the sensible calculation at this moment for Russia's strategic interest. So you can't just say all autoc autocratic movements are Putinist, because as you imply, there is no overarching ideology to it. Right. There normally isn't uh, a a benefit to them all banding together the way that, you know, a benefit to us states all sharing the same ideology, except if uh, the forces of uh, democracy are weak, they're all kind of strong. And so, uh, you know, for a long time, it was kind of inexplicable. Why is Putin so intent on allowing Assad in there? Well, there's the principle of him not wanting to see uh, leaders 
uh, toppled in a color revolution and mm-hmm. uh, by perpetuating the horrific uh, bloodshed there he has uh, uh, helped to create along with Assad uh, this uh, incredible refugee cri- crisis that's extraordinarily destabilizing for all of the uh, democratic West because that uh, the forces that that unleashes are very difficult and uh, you know they've uh, certainly participated in active measures that have stirred anti-refugee sentiment in Europe. And that's something you don't have to work very hard to stir. And also, of course, Syria has been a Soviet client going back to the 60s and it was a Russian client. So there's a matter of if you let your allies get overthrown, people don't want to be your allies so much, uh, which is the kind of thing that America tends to learn and then unlearn in rapid succession, uh, depending on whether or not we think we can go along without allies. So the Russia, you know, has got a generational by now investment in Syria and they are, you know, probably still have enough uh, good old fashioned geopoliticians who say we need a naval base in the Mediterranean and Syria is our naval base in the Mediterranean. So like him or hate him, Assad is our guy and we've got to uh, stick up for him. And uh, again, by utilizing other assets on the ground, both in terms of propaganda and in terms of uh encouraging forces within Turkey, within Iraq, within other countries that are creating the condition of weakening the rebel alliance against Assad, he has sort of played what everyone says was a horribly weak hand into literally the only strong hand left in Syria. And that is why the SVR and these other agencies continue active measures, because it has a proven track record. It works. It's much easier to destabilize everyone else and make them screw themselves up than it is to invade a country, uh, uh, rewrite its constitution, and turn it into a, a, a tame and obedient ally. The, the Soviets figured out the, the limits of that in the, in the 60s and then again in the 80s. And so now it's a lot simpler to simply turn a country's alternatives into go with Russia or go to pieces. And that's what they're doing in the Ukraine. That's what they're going to be doing to the Baltics next. It's what they just did to Georgia in 2008. And it's what they're, you know, they've done in Syria pretty much. Uh, yep. That's his, uh, his greater empire coming back. It won't be in the same form if he gets his way. But uh, so anyway, uh, from the acronyms to the uh, strategic uh, global perspective, you now can go and uh, well, actually your friends when you're sitting watching news footage together, meaning that we can move on to our next segment. the werewolves of Dacia? They are the descendants of the other son, uh, Romulus's twin That sounds re- fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. 
and in Sweden by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as Fallen Gods, Runepunk Steam Quests, Lamb Chop Love Songs, and the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like... Steve K. Anton Kulikov. Ryan Mannix. David Larkins. Andrew Clory. The chutter of IBM Selectric Keys and the glug of mid-priced bourbon welcome us once more to a land where we learn how to write good. Uh, today, we are actively and in a positive, plot-advancing manner tackling that old Campbellian bugbear, the hero who refuses the call to action. And if there is one thing besides the anti-Semitism that I would hit Joseph Campbell with a hammer for, this is it. Um, uh, the reluctant hero, or like I like to call him, how to waste the first third of your novel, movie, or television show doing literally nothing. Robin, you have perhaps a different take on the reluctant hero, though you may be reluctant to share it. Uh, I'm enthusiastically ready to share uh, my take on the reluctant hero, which again is skeptical of, uh, of all things Campbellian. Uh, you will note that the most famous supposedly Campbellian uh, narrative has a very eager hero, a Star Wars. Luke is chomping at the bit for something to happen and go off and do something. He wants to be somebody. He wants to go uh, from zero to hero. And um, so other than Campbell, uh, I guess we need to examine what the uh, whole reason is that people love the idea of the reluctant hero. And I think uh, largely that's because a hero who doesn't want to get involved in a conflict, particularly a violent conflict, is admirable because he obviously then is, is uh, being selfless. That if, you, if you're too eager to go in and get into a fight and, and solve problems... You're well, probably you're some, a thug. Yeah, some sort of crazy person like Batman. Uh, whereas if you're, uh, if you're Sergeant York, if you're the pacifist who uh, really, really, really needs to be uh, convinced... Uh, to finally go and, um, and mow kill down the all entire, the Germans. Yes, the the entire uh, pillbox full of machine gunners. Uh, that uh, seems uh, more noble. And I think there. Would you agree that there's something sp- particularly American about the reluctant hero that sort of relates to the old idea of political isolationism? Uh, because we see this again and again. Like Casablanca also is about a detached, uh, cynical. A protagonist who was once altruistic has had his heart broken, and it's about his journey from selfishness to altruism. And and again and again, uh, often the reluctant hero uh, has to be uh, go through a big transformation to see that he has to do something altruistic and change the world. And I think, uh, in a large degree, that stems from uh, American suspicion of political engagement, particularly from. Uh, the beginning of the last century. I think it also comes a lot of it out of things like the Quaker uh, habit of quietism uh, and the Puritans even had sort of an ethic of that, of stay out of the affairs of the world because 
it's just going to corrupt and tempt you and ruin things. And so there's a lot of that to the American character. I think you're right. And I think the whole George Washington model where you are, are a simple farmer just doing your, doing your business, raising your, raising your crops, growing your hemp. And then your nation needs you and you're called into service and you go reluctantly and you serve as best as you can, but you just can't wait to get back to the old farm and farm away again. That Cincinnatus hand on the plow type heroism that America, uh, spent a great deal of, uh, of, of time and blood to encourage. Um, and as a result, no military coups, you're welcome. So, so, so yeah, there's, there's a good part of that to the character. You look at a movie like Shane where classically it, we're just waiting for Alan Ladd to finally lose it and kill everybody. But we know that that's not what we should be rooting for morally because the movie is so great. Unforgiven does that in a minor key where the guy's already terrible and we're just hoping to not see him fall further, but we totally want to see him fall further because it's Clint Eastwood and everyone needs to be shot in this movie. Um, so the, the Western has a lot of that. That goes back, I guess, to Owen Wister's The Virginian, where the Virginian is sort of an aristocrat and above the, the petty squabbles of the West until finally he must take a hand, uh, and, and settle out, uh, the, the, the ways of gentlemen. Um, uh, the, 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 the guy who walks down the mean streets without becoming mean Chandler's hero is, is that same sort of detached character. Right. And it's not just American, uh, yeah. uh Fro- Frodo Baggins, of course, is an, uh, that's what it's all about is the yep. only person you can trust with power is a person who really, really doesn't not only power. doesn't want power, but he doesn't even really want to leave the house. Yes. Although again, um, uh, uh, Tolkien doesn't spend a lot of time having Frodo refuse the call to action. It's no, because like, he's got a hundred pages. He's of got lots scene. of stuff going. Yeah. Um, so this brings us to this is a, a writing segment, and so how do you do a reluctant hero well? So I think we found sort of the, the thematic reasons why you might be attracted to this subject matter, um, and the, or it might be actually the the whole point of the story, like Hamlet. Right. Right. I mean, if the whole story is about reluctance then that makes sense to have a reluctant hero through uh, four of the five acts. Right. right? And that's because it is an attractive, on, on a structural level, it's an attractive transformation to have the hero go through, whether you conceive that as zero to hero, a selfishness to altruism, or as in the case of Hamlet, action versus contemplation, that this is a, a an arc that your character can go through. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, as you suggest... Uh, there are uh, rocks and shoals that you can uh, crash yourself up on if you spend too much time with the hero being reluctant to do the things that we want them as an audience to do. Because the trick to emotional engagement in conventional narrative is to present something that the uh, generally that the hero wants and that we as audience members, by identifying with the hero, want uh, her to get and fear that she won't get. Uh, but as soon as you introduce a reluctant hero, that you introduce a tension, which can be interesting, but can also be um, easily kill the momentum. Because if the character works too hard at being reluctant, you just go, well, wait a minute. You're, the main obstacle to anything happening in this story is this character I'm supposed to be identifying with. So what I really want is for them to, you know, throw in their hand and raise and call and want stuff to happen. And so uh, you have to make sure that your reluctant hero isn't doing things that the audience doesn't want them to do and that the character doesn't want to do, um, which is an issue in the first act of the new John Wick movie, um, or uh, just that they spend way too much time dilly-dallying around before they uh, before they do things, so that you have to make sure 
that when you're building your story, that they're, if they are undergoing a transformation from inaction to action or from selfishness to altruism or whatever it is, that nonetheless, throughout the vast bulk of your narrative, that they are actually pursuing that goal and moving the story forward instead of dragging their feet and preventing the story from getting started. Which brings us to your uh, Campbell objection, is that uh, the refusing of the call should really just be a pro forma, you know, well, am I really the best person to bear the ring or am I really needed for this? And it's certainly not something that's necessary for all transformative or heroic narrative. Uh, James Bond, uh, when he, you know, there's a, a, in Skyfall, he suddenly uh, refuses the call and that's just weird and wrong and bad. It's yes. like James Bond should be ready to go. He's not yeah. Frodo. Right. No, I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a, like a, he's a coursing hound kept, uh, kept on the leash by the queen. Um, the, uh, the, and, and this I think is a little bit of your old tension, I guess our old tension between the iconic hero and the dramatic hero, because the iconic hero by definition exists to act. Yes. A Batman exists to punch thugs. James Bond exists to kill weird supervillains. Um, uh, you know, Hornblower exists to fire broadsides into the, into the sides of heaving French ships. That's what they do. And they can't be reluctant to do it because we got adventure coming. There's a ship on the cover. Let's go shoot it. Um, but a dramatic hero, because they have an internal tension and because the internal tension is the point of the story in a way that firing broadsides into people's guns or having a sword fight with Laertes is not the point of the story are going to, uh, spend more time engaged in internal, uh, dispute or having other obstacles that they themselves put in their own way, as you, as you suggest, sort of extend that period of the story. And the question is not necessarily iconic, good, dramatic, bad, although iconic is certainly good. Um, but, uh, the question is, can you actually make your character interesting enough so that them not shooting someone is as interesting as them shooting someone, given that shooting is super interesting? Right. And so you have to have something that's going on in a scene where the character, you know, if you have a scene where the character is refusing the call, um, it can be an interesting ambiguity for a while to say, well, I can really see why he doesn't want to leave his farm and go off to war. There's all sorts of great reasons why that would be. But ultimately, uh, if we have any sort of genre knowledge at all, if we've ever seen a story about someone who doesn't want to leave their farm to go to war, we know that something is going to happen in that story, and that is he's going to leave his farm to go to war. And that is that Bannister Tarleton will come and burn down his farm. Right. And so we're also invoking as another uh, principle that I often talk about in, in this context, which is if there's something in your story that the audience is know, knows is going to happen, have it happen as quickly as you can. Yeah. Uh, don't rush to it. Don't skip all of the emotional resonance, but don't leave it till the, you know, the end of, you know, act two, get it in there because otherwise you're just playing a waiting game and the audience is just sitting there sort of twiddling their fingers, waiting for the real story to start. And again, you can present, you know, internal monologue, you can present internal character. I mean, there's a, uh, one of my very favorite novels ever is goodbye, Mr. Chips, uh, by James Hilton who wrote uh, Lost Horizon and some other things, and literally nothing happens in Goodbye, Mr. Chips. It's just about Mr. Chips teaching class and thinking about things. He doesn't even have a call to action to refuse. His life is about being on the sidelines. 
And it's a great novel because James Hilton, first of all, it's a short novel. But second of all, James Hilton gets you into the character of Mr. Chips. You're in his head. You like spending time in his head. You like seeing things through his eyes. And so you're like, no, this is a great, comfortable life. I don't want anything to happen to Mr. Chips. I want him to stay the the same unchanging rock that he has always been, except to just sort of mellow out and be even more Mr. Chipsy by the end of the novel. Right. And, and, it, and is there a, a threat to his chipsiness? Not really. You know, war, progress, railroads, you know, collapsing educational standards. But but Mr. Chips and by extension, you know, England will always see those things off. They'll they'll put them in their proper place and the Mr. Chipsiness of the world will will roll on unabated and everyone will agree that was a good thing that we had Mr. Chips in our life. Right. And so the uh, but, but the emotional question that it poses is, can Mr. Chips remain chipsy? Right. Yeah. It is, it's and sort so of... you're rooting for him to to remain uh, chipsy and, and resist external influence and presumably successfully does that. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of it's bittersweet because, again, it's not a one note character and because James Hilton is interesting. And there's there's things that he sort of gives up the opportunity to do in order to stay more Mr. Chipsy. But the but but the notion that if you're going to write an internal a conflict or even an internal focus story, it doesn't have to be boring. It doesn't have to be uh, f- overwrought. It doesn't have to constantly aim like it's going somewhere and then never go anywhere. You just have to learn what internal character monologue looks yeah. like. The, the hero is by no think. means the only kind of protagonist. Yes. And so uh, we're specifically in this segment, or rather we specifically have talked about the reluctant hero and are now going to move on to our final segment. Ha <laughs> ha! Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Why I had The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's Puppet Land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the Maker Killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you. Once more, we stand in proximity to Ken's time machine. That, of course, is the vehicle that uh, Time Incorporated uses to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate the time stream. And this time, as is so often the case lately, a Patreon backer has a request to make of Ken and his chronological vehicle. And that backer is Dylan Hoover. And his request is, how would we go about saving scholar, librarian, educator Hypatia from her death in Alexandria? Now, from his use of the uh, the royal we, um, maybe Dylan wants to be taken along. I think we have a, a higher patron level for that. Yeah. We actually get to go on time journey. Dylan, Dylan is good people, but he's not time incorporated uh, cleared. It's out of my hands. So this uh, involves a lot of setup and backstory because the... Because it's about early Christianity. Yeah. So <laughs> the, the death of Hypatia on March 8th, uh, 415... 
uh, is uh, in Alexandria is uh, one of an incredibly complicated uh, political and religious situation, a whole bunch of conflicts uh, coming together. Uh, it's a conflict between uh, civil authority and religious authority. It's a sectarian conflict uh, between Christians and Jews and also uh, Hellenistic philosophers. And guess who gets the uh, horribly m murdered end of the stick on that one? So, Ken, uh, uh, normally I would just ask you to, to, in an academic way, to set up all of these uh, characters and conflicts, but but you were there. I was there. Uh, uh, so uh, paint us one of your beautiful word pictures of uh, what you encountered when you arrived in Alexandria in 415. Okay, Alexandria is uh, the queen city of the Mediterranean. Even then, even after a hundred years of alleged Constantinople trying to jump up and be cool. But Alexandria was founded by Alexander the Great, who has the great after his name and got it honestly by conquering other foreigners instead of like Constantine the Great by conquering fellow Romans. So Alexandria is a city that is fond of itself, but it is not a city that is happy with itself because at this time, uh, the Christians have begun to feel their oats and uh, move up. So the question is, who gets to decide who is the Bishop of Alexandria? Because that is the place from which all blessings, spiritual and temporal, flow. And so the uh, city, because it is uh, uh, 415 AD and because it is the late Roman Empire and because it is early Christianity, is alive with disputation and argument. And even back in the old days, it was alive with disputation and argument, but it was argument over how do you measure a sphere? And are there people who live in the antipodes? Not argument of what is the true nature of, nature of the Christ? And if you answer wrong, I will hit you with a rock, just like Jesus would. So there, uh, there were riots around the election of the bishop. There were riots around uh, theater performances. There were riots about people uh, stepping to each other because Alexandria is a uh, ethnically mixed city and also a religiously mixed city. It was probably about a third Jewish in uh, 415, uh, something that we can't even conceive of the notion of this immense diaspora Jewish population. But uh, but uh, despite the uh, Roman uh, persecutions of the first and second centuries, the Jewish population in Alexandria comes roaring back uh, again, despite the Roman persecutions, the Christian population has come roaring back. And now Christianity, having been the official religion of the empire for about 10 years, the Christians are newly feeling their oats and a new batch of riots is always on the boil because someone has felt left out in the latest dispensation of power. Meanwhile, been persecuted. Finally, we have power. Finally, we're going to persecute. Step one, persecute. Uh, and there is the remnants of the old Greek establishment. One assumes sort of like the old Bostonian Brahmins sitting up on Beacon Hill, or in this case, in the library and the museum, uh, looking down their nose at everybody and being all smart. And, uh, and, and just like the Boston Brahmins, barely believing in God at all. And they're wearing the fourth uh, century equivalent of, uh, uh, tweed jackets with uh, corduroy uh, leather patches. Corduroy patches, them. and um, uh, exactly. Uh, and if there were pipes, they would have smoked them. There, there are all manner of other things to smoke because it is the East. There's um, uh, there, there are lots of uh, ample use of of bahang and other exciting uh, chemicals. Uh, and uh, good old wine because remember, can't drink the water, so everyone is always half smashed or dead. Those are your two choices. So it's a city where. Even the tiniest thing can and indeed does start a riot, such as 
a law against gathering around mime performances. <laughs> a, a sensible measure in a any other... A sensible edict by context. any measure. Um, this particular one was promulgated by Orestes, uh, the Roman governor of Alexandria. And by Roman, we mean Roman, because the empire is still barely together at this point. But he's appointed by those jerks in Constantinople who think they're better than us and think they understand Christ. And, of course, they're probably wrong. And uh, he is down here telling us we can't gather around uh, mimes and dancers, many of whom are Jews, and occasionally express our approval of the mime performance by pelting them with garbage and starting a riot. And Orestes, being a governor, is all about making sure the tax money keeps flowing and therefore keeping the number of riots down to a bare minimum. Yes, if they'd had hockey, they would have outlawed that because, again, it's propensity it's, to riot. Well, they had horse racing that uh, it, it, about 100 years from now uh, nearly destroys Constantinople. So they're probably also fighting over over uh, horse racing. But this is not what this fight is about. This is about mimes. <laughs> anyway, um. So uh, Orestes uh, uh, publishes an edict that says, uh, don't be gathering around uh, the mimes and don't throw things at them. And there was a, a Christian present at the reading of the edict, uh, a guy named Hyrax, who, because the audience for the uh, edict reading was primarily Jews, they felt that he was there to make trouble. And so they uh, accused him of basically being there as an agent provocateur of the bishop, Cyril of Alexandria, who, if you went to a seminary or even spent any time thinking about uh, Christian theology, will recognize as one of the fathers of the church. Um, uh, so guess who wins this fight? So the uh, governor orders Hyrax grabbed and tortured to death in the theater uh, to let everyone, especially Bishop Cyril, know that when Orestes reads an edict, he by God means it to be read without a lot of um, brouhaha. Right. And, and ironically, this guy ends up being horribly tortured in public for being too enthusiastic about the governor's edict. Yes. <laughs> so take that, uh, bootlickers. Well, I, I expect that the form in which his enthusiasm was expressed was that of even the governor agrees with good Bishop Searle type activity. But uh, anyway, he's he's grabbed, and the Christians and the Jews are mad at each other now because of Hyrax being grabbed. And the Jews, according to the only cr uh, contemporary history that we have, decided to preemptively strike at the Christians because here's the governor on their side. They can't lose. So they spread a rumor that the church of, um, uh, of, of St. Mark is on fire. And when uh, the Christians ran out into the streets to put out the fire, the Jews set upon them and killed them, which is, it turns out, a terrible idea because if the Jews are a third of the city, the Christians are probably half the city. And so that is followed by Cyril, then on his own recognizance, rounding up as many Jews as he can lay his hands on and certainly going into all the synagogues and looting them to the bare walls and turning them all into churches which is the kind of thing that the civil governance, Orestes, finds so problematic about yes. Bishop Cyril. Yes, if you're, if you're a Roman governor, you want the monopoly of force. Uh, you do not want the bishop taking that role over. And you don't want uh, the, the people who, by and large, pay a lot of taxes to be stripped of their possessions. Because guess what? There's no, there's, there's no sales tax on looting. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Orestes feels that this is a, a bad uh, attitude, and Cyril 
says, oh, we're, we're all Christians together. Let me give you a copy of, uh, the gospels. And then that will be my peace offering to you. But Orestes knows that if he accepts the gospels from Cyril, then that will demonstrate that Cyril is mission of religious authority over the governor because he's acting as his religious instructor. And so Orestes refuses the gospels and Cyril says, what are you in league with pagans then? Have you, have you failed? To uh, give the right answer to my no-win situation? To my no-win situation? Looks like someone's on the Kobayashi Maruvius. And so he begins accusing Orestes of being uh, a bad Christian, which is a standard back and forth between Alexandria and Constantinople. This is at the time when uh, Nestorius is teaching in Constantinople, and Cyril is condemning him as a heretic. Uh and uh, so uh, Orestes is being painted as a Nestorian, as a closet Nestorian, and a kind of guy who hangs around with pagans, which indeed he does because he's the governor of the whole city. And paganry is not illegal in Alexandria, or if it is, it's illegal on the DL so that no one has to worry about it. And all the rich old Greeks can still pay their taxes and everyone can be happy. And one of the oldest and richest of the Greeks and most influential is a woman named Hypatia, who is a uh, astronomer and geographer uh, among her other talents, but is also the head of the Platonic Academy in Alexandria. And the original Platonic Academy is up in uh, Athens. And this is like its most celebrated satellite campus is the one in Alexandria. So she is the head of the Platonic Academy and is, first of all, I think there's a, a bit of a, you know, dancing bear attitude, a woman teaching philosophy. What? But she's also very impressive. And even, you know, Scholasticus, who only has a tiny ax to grind in this fight, uh, says that people of all religions would come and listen to her give philosophical uh, answers. And Scholasticus is the writer of our contemporary. Yes. He's Socrates. Scholasticus is the writer of our contemporary source, but you will uh, note that he is also called Socrates of Constantinople. So guess whose side he's on? Um, Orestes is, is, is. So uh, Orestes is known to go to Hypatia, just like if you're the governor, you talk to the head of the university in town. And so, a group of radical desert monks have been brought into the city as stormtroopers, basically, by Cyril. Um, uh, they're monks from the mountains of Nitria, which is off in the middle of nowhere. And they spend all their time up on mountains, fulminating against the Sodom and Gomorrah that is Alexandria, where there's open licentiousness and paganry and half-clad women. And, oh, goodness, I have to go hit myself with ropes again. Um, and so when they are brought down into the city, they act up. And so their form of acting up is to start more riots uh, and throw rocks at the governor. Uh, the governor grab has the monk who um, uh, threw rocks at him. And it is, in this case, not the governor's army, but it is the people of Alexandria who, recognizing that the last thing they need is professional rioters coming in and being ringers and ruining everyone's uh, amateur status. Uh, they, they grab that monk and they, and they take him out of the uh, group. And he is uh, again, tortured to death because that's the sort of thing that happens. And Cyril tries to make that guy a martyr, but everyone in Alexandria is, I don't think you're a martyr. If you were throwing rocks at the governor, I think that's like not <laughs> yeah, martyr. You kind of had that one coming. You, you can't be a martyr and have it coming. So Cyril is sort of wrong footed by this uh, riot started by the monk Ammonius. And so, he needs to sort of move against the other pillar of Orestes's support, which is the, the pagan Greeks. And one does not know if Cyril gave the order, if Cyril said, gosh, if Hypatia were out of the picture, my life would be better. Or if 
just uh, these these monks, having been preaching against the hotbed of paganry that is Alexandria their whole lives, took it into their head to go and grab the lead pagan and take care of them because a uh, street preacher, a reader named Peter, who is not listed in Scholasticus as one of the monks, but is almost certainly of their party, gins up a mob because that's the easiest thing in the world. And they grab Hypatia and drag her off and kill her, according to the Greek, astrakoi, which means uh, literally potsherds. And so it is usually assumed, because people like lurid stuff in their history, that she was hacked to death with potsherds and oyster shells. But ostracoi also, of course, is the root of our word ostracism, meaning that you are expelled from the community. So it's possible that uh, Scholasticus is saying she was killed because she was foreign, because she was uh, a stranger and should be uh, driven out. And then people later said, oh, he probably meant she was hacked to pieces by potsherds. But either way, she was a nice 65-year-old lady who was murdered by a mob. So it right. doesn't or, really or matter how Or they drew lots happened. to decide who yes. would kill her. Um, uh, or they drew lots to decide who would kill her. An excellent uh, third choice. Um, but anyway, she is uh, murdered. Um, uh, there's a great screaming deal. Uh, but uh, that has wound up setting the... Uh, pagan community of, of Alexandria, the Greek community, on the back foot, and Orestes eventually realizes he can't make any headway against Cyril because Cyril is not turning anybody over for the murder. Uh, he, he, you know, presented with the, with the uh, fait accompli, he doubles down, and Orestes has to go back to Constantinople and report, um, uh, send another guy, Cyril is too uh, ensconced here. And uh, Cyril continues to be Bishop of Alexandria for the next 30 years, and uh, his theology becomes the basis of the Egyptian national theology, which I guess you could call it, uh, which eventually is the Coptic church now, uh, was called monophysitism back in the day. Cyril is not a monophysite, but his theology of the overwhelming nature of the divine incarnation becomes the basis for monophysitism in the next uh, 20 years or so right. after his death. Now, uh, a part of your time mission, of course, is to prevent us from having to try and pronounce that word. Right. So, Ideally. <laughs> uh, so what, how do you, that was history as we knew it. Uh -huh. How did you change history to save Hypatia? All right. You can't not have riots in Alexandria. Um, it's just not going to happen. So the way that I save Hypatia is to get her the job as head of the original Plato's Academy in Athens. And it's relatively easy to uh, drink an old philosopher to death or to drink him at least into stupefaction. And we should maybe hire another guy. Right. Uh, uh, and that's in keeping with your, I barely killed. Anybody. I barely killed anyone policy. Yeah. And so then by dint of presenting Hypatia with, interesting theories about the nature of measuring stars and perhaps even the curvature of the earth. And who can say, Oh, look at that. Is that an accurate way to predict eclipses? That'd be interesting. If only someone were in Athens so they could study these cool manuscripts that I have left over from great astronomers of the past. Why it's Hipparchus's original manuscript. Look, it's got his coffee stains on it. Stop asking how he was getting coffee. <laughs> someone had to keep him up at night. So, uh, by luring Hypatia to take the gig in Athens, she is removed from this riot-prone nightmare that is Alexandria. Uh, undoing Alexandria's screwed-upness is pretty much impossible, because even if you take out Ammonius or you take out Peter, there's a bunch of these monks, right? They're, right. It's not one monk that is like the sort of, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald of monks. It's just they're... There, there are a bunch of desert fanatics who are eager to throw down with these um, uh, coastal elites. And uh, 
and do, in fact. So, uh, and of course, uh, Dylan did not make fixing Alexandria part of your brief. Nope, didn't happen. Uh, and so, a, a simple matter of uh, tempting her to whisk herself to a- Athens uh, solves that problem. And so, what uh, uh, does a Hypatia who uh, lives longer and uh, uh, ends her days in Athens? How does that change the timeline? It probably presents the Greek astronomy that uh, survives the, uh, the the Dark Ages uh, with a with a stronger bearing. Right? She's she's really. Uh, this, uh, later commentators have said that she edited the Almagest of Ptolemy. That she um, uh, people used to say she edited a commentary on Ptolemy, and then people went back and looked at it and said maybe she edited Ptolemy. And so if her edition of Ptolemy became the standard one working um, in Athens, living longer, having more opportunities to um, uh, interact with the, the uh, other scholars around the world might have produced a greater diffusion, at least of Alexandrian astronomical knowledge. And very possibly it might've improved it. Although she does not seem to have been a particularly original thinker, but she was certainly very, very good at, um, uh, sort of sorting through what was going on and, and making, uh, 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 new additions of it, I guess, seems to be her, her real strong point. Uh, she did write a, a sort of a summa of what we know about astronomy that we are pretty sure that, uh, we don't have anymore. So more copies of that would probably have survived if they were being written and sent around the Mediterranean world as opposed to left in Alexandria. Uh, sort of the uh, citation problem of the humanities, I guess, is older than the humanities themselves. Uh, and so uh, we've got her and her manuscripts uh, safely out of uh, crazy Alexandria. And uh, other than that, there isn't a lot of big change to the time stream. So Time Incorporated uh, does appreciate that sort of uh, surgical precision. And if there's uh, anything else it appreciates, it's a quick segue out of an episode. And so uh, Time Incorporated, we're uh, headed to the to the lounge. So... Uh, uh, get our uh, drinks of choice ready, and we'll uh, plot some more time shenanigans for future episodes. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Join such flaneurs of the astral as... Andrew Lalibert. Rick Neal. Andrew Miller. Christopher O. And Delta Green. Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Hite. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.